1966, Don Cassini and Lou Nasadani, having been blessed with a common solution to their common problem, founded the Sister Ignatia Group. The third founder, Tony Morales, was invited to join to provide the wisdom of his experience. <laughs> Tonight, as we celebrate the 27th anniversary of that occasion, let us bow our heads in prayer. The light of God surrounds us. The love of God enfolds us. Wherever we are, God is, and all is well. Almighty God, you have given us the grace to find you. Please continue to give us your strength for the journey. Let us always remember from whence this bounty comes. And most importantly, as we go about your work, continue to guide us in your love. Amen. Thank you, Beth. That was beautiful. Okay, I'll turn the meeting over to Donald. We're going to eat now. Get it back. We're ready in the kitchen. Let her go. This is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problems and help others recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are not, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Uh, later on, I want to thank all the people who came over from across the border. And we've got 40 people here from, who came in from all parts of Canada, Toronto, London, Welland, St. Catharines, Niagara Falls, Canada, and for the others part from the states. And I, I got them written down in all the other states and all cities and states in Ohio. But uh, without any further ado, uh, you know, a while back I was looking for a speaker and I, we have a friend, Harry Heater, and I hate to tell you, but he's bigger than Tony in weight and size. And he... He plays a lot more cards than Tony, and he gives Tony a hell of a drubbing when we go out of town and meet him. And I asked him about a lead, and he told me about this gentleman, and I tracked him down somehow along the way, and he agreed to come. Now, his story's in the big book, and I have never told anyone yet what his story was. <laughs> and as of until tonight, I just found out myself. <laughs> so I took it for granted it was there. Now... I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I lost the paper that I wrote it on, you know. <laughs> but he said it's in there, so I'll have to believe him. But he, he drove from he drove in today, and I appreciate that, you know. I, I'm sure you'll enjoy it because we talked with him today. The first thing that happened, he couldn't get into the hotel room because I forgot to pay for it. <laughs> and, and, and what happened, I was with a bunch of Canadians from Toronto, and we took him to the shrine, figuring everything would be all right. We went to the first bank we went to. They wouldn't let us in. Second one, we waited 35 minutes and they didn't want no Canadian money. <laughs> so I got disgusted and went back to the hotel and they told me that this guy from Chicago was blowing his top and the girl said to me, he looked like a gangster. So <laughs> I said, if he was from Chicago, he might have been, you know. So she, he got in the room, all right, and thanks to Paul Rizzo, the, the, the man from Buffalo over there with the gray hair with the cane, you know, the man from Uncle. <laughs> He signed the check, he gave him the credit card, and he finally got in, so he made it. And I guess he settled down now, he ate some food, and he's kind of happy. When I played a pork, that, that steak went by, whatever you call that stuff, and he just took half of it off, and Tony had a heart attack. <laughs> Damn near lost my sponsor. 
I figured we met his match, you know what I mean? But uh, in spite of all all sincerity, this is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's possibly one of the largest meetings of the Sister Ignatia group we've had. And and this group is near and dear to my heart because I started it with uh, Lou Natrasani, the late new. And if Lou was here tonight, he wouldn't believe what he's seeing, you know. Couldn't believe what it was. And Tony came along for help because... At that time, you didn't open a group at the, at the whim because you just wanted to be a secretary, you know. You had to get permission from everybody around you to open up a group. And then they told me with five years, I didn't have enough time. <laughs> and now when I tell these kids in five years, they haven't served their apprenticeship, they get mad, you know. But uh, we had to get Tony as a guidance counselor, and he was working second shift, so we didn't get much guidance. <laughs> but without that, any further ado, I certainly appreciate you being here. Tony does. And it's been a lot of hard work. And I want to take this moment right now to thank everybody who sold tickets for us. Because you know who you are. Without you, this thing would have never been able to come off. The ticket sellers, our hats are off to you. We applaud you because you're the ones that made it great for us. And while I'm here, we've got another commercial. We've got the speaker that's speaking Sunday morning from Las Vegas, Nevada. He's speaking for the freeway breakfast. It'll be at the Casa Villa di Morelli next door this Sunday morning. And if you want to meet the people from Canada, they're all staying over the weekend. And, and we're all going to Dr. Bob's in caravan tomorrow. So if you want to join, meet us by the Budgetel Hotel at 10 o'clock in the morning. So we're taking you all to Akron with us. If you've never been there, it's a treat. Anyhow, now to get down to the business at hand. Alcoholics Anonymous. The largest meeting on a Friday night in Cleveland, Ohio. How do you like that one, huh? So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Harris from Chicago, our speaker tonight. Harris, you want to come on up here? Those of you who want to, uh, will you join me in the serenity prayer? John grant me the strength to, to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. My story is in the big book, but I can't read it, so I have to get uh, uh, it enlarged so I can read it to you. Uh, my name is Harris Kimbrough, and I'm an alcoholic. I came in down in Texas, so I'll do it like they did down in Texas. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a sedating or tranquilizing pill or a mind-changing or mood-altering drug since the 17th of December of 1962. Now, if my second ex-wife was here, she'd jump up and say, Now, listen, Dr. Sanctimonious, you tell them about the preparation H you used in the winter of 72 when we're breaking up. But... Uh, I don't see her here, so it's okay. Um, I like this introduction that Don gave me. Um, I went over to a little town in Oklahoma after I'd been sober about two or three years, and, and uh, this guy introduced me. And uh, they don't have enough people in Oklahoma in the small towns to make up a group meeting every night, so they kind of would travel between the little tra- towns and then they'd have kind of a uh, get-together about once a year. So they invited me over and this guy got up and he said, uh, it says here, this speaker needs no introduction and I'm sure glad because I never hear Debbie. And he sat down, just like that. 
<laughs> so I do appreciate uh, all the trouble that Don's gone to, and um, I'm sure glad I sat next to Tony at dinner uh, because I sure did get fed good. Uh, uh, although I did take half of the beef, uh, he ordered another round for both of us, so it turned out okay. I um, I always appreciate talking to a uh, AA audience. I really. Uh, every once in a while in my early days, I talked to, to non-AA audiences. And I remember I went to uh, um, Nuthouse one time on an invitation from a psychologist friend. He was just a normal psychologist, and uh, we had kind of met uh, kind of professionally. I'd been fixing his teeth. And anyway, he uh, uh, said, listen, he said, you know, um, I'm listening to you. And he said, I believe that... Uh, well, you're talking around an AA. You might come out to the uh, pavilion, the psychiatric pavilion. He didn't call it a nut house because he was getting paid. <clears throat> and so anyway, he said, you come on out there and says, you talk to them. I said, I think you can help them. So I went out there. And I got up there and I started taking. And, you know, at, a, at an alcoholic anonymous meeting, you get some expression. Everybody's got a different expression here within about 30 seconds. But you get to talking in one of these nut houses, and nobody changes any expressions. And either, you know, and I went on with my talk, you know, and nothing was happening. And, you know, I've already gotten a few laughs here, but nobody cuckled, you know, nobody did anything. They just sat there, you know. They were normal nuts. And uh, anyway, I looked over at my friend, and I said, do you think I ought to go on? He said, go on, go on. It's wonderful therapy. So anyway, I went on a little further, and I kind of got into my talk, and again, nobody had acquired or lost any expression. They were just sitting there. And all of a sudden, a guy in the back of the room got up and said, this is a lousy talk. So I turned around to my friend. I said, you want me to go on? He said, go on, go on. It's a wonderful therapy. Go on, go on. So I go on a little further, and about 10 minutes later, this guy stands up again. He said, I said, this is a lousy talk. And I turned to my friend over there, the psychologist, and he says, Go on, go on. He said, that's the first sensible thing that man has said in five years. <laughs> so I appreciate an AA audience. I really do. Um, seems like there's an effort nowadays uh, to try to uh, blame alcoholism on the environment of the family or the environment that the family created or the um, lack of family created some kind of an environment, and uh, I kind of have looked at my background and my story. My father and mother were um, well-educated, well-situated, well-connected, hard-working, moral, upright people, church-going people, and my father never took a drink until he was 35, and almost immediately he became a full-blown alcoholic. And... Uh, I've heard a lot of alcoholic stories, and I think that listening to all alcoholic stories, a lot of them are different, but I've just almost come to the conclusion that alcoholics come from just about any background and any environment and any family or lack of family thereof. Um, I came to AA, and I looked at you people, and I, I, I really did come down here in 1946 with my father to kind of uh, get him straightened out. Um, and. I checked AA out. I knew what you did in AA. I figured it out. And um, I saw what you did. You sat around tables, and you drank coffee, and you smoked cigarettes, and you played gin rummy. 
And uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be like you people because uh, I don't guess y'all ever had these problems, but I uh, I had some pretty big ideas and sitting around card tables and drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and gin rummy didn't include my big plans. So it was kind of a surprise to me that in 1951 I became an alcoholic too. And I didn't, you know, seem to uh, have the background that a lot of other people do. I had the advantage of AA of knowing what's here and, and just kind of walking away from it. Um, I think that basically uh, I was kind of a good boy. And, uh, you know, I look now at some of this stuff and, and uh, you know, if you were kind of a juvenile delinquent, your mother would point to me and say, why couldn't you be like that Kimbrough boy there? And that's kind of the way I went through high school. And I think Carl Jung, as far as I'm concerned, describes what's wrong with alcoholics best. Now, uh, that place over in Oklahoma, um, they used to say, well, the trouble with an alcoholic, he's about a half a bubble out of plum. And uh, Carl Jung was a little more sophisticated than that. And I think Carl Jung probably had his peg pretty good. He said uh, in the letter to Bill Wilson in 1961, he said that uh, an alcoholic has an unrecognized spiritual need. And I think that's true. As good as my parents were in the 1930s, uh, alcoholism still, you know, came into my father's life. And as good a boy as I was in the 40s, um, about the time I was 19, it, it hit me. Uh, now, I'd like to say that one thing that I did have before ever touched the drop was I think I had this unrecognized spiritual need. I know that you read Bill Wilson's Spiritual Experience in the big book, and there comes the age, and he talks about being on the mountaintop in a clean a breeze blowing right through the middle of him. Well, when I was about 13 or so, I began to feel a great big hole in the middle of me. Uh, there was something missing. And it took me a long time to figure out that I just simply had a God-shaped hole in the middle of me, and that was my trouble. Um, I think that Carl Jung also said that what we alcoholics get is kind of a, a two-bit spiritual experience or a counterfeit spiritual experience off of alcohol that seemingly fills that hole up. And uh, I think that most of our experiences are pretty much the same. I know mine was that. Is the first time I took a drink, it filled that hole up as good as it was ever going to fill it up. In other words, it never was filled up that good after that. But I kept hoping I could get back to that place where that God-shaped hole was filled up. So I kind of arrived at uh, teenage in, in what I would consider uh, alcoholic shape without taking uh, a drink at all. Uh, a lot of this stuff is in the big book. And uh, so I'm going to read some of my big book story because... I said it better uh, than I can now. In 1967, 68, when I wrote that, uh, I was in a real honest streak, and I still pull out the big book and read it uh, because it kind of shocks me as how honest I was. Um, I never smoked or drank until I was about 19 years old, and I was an uh, honor graduate in high school. Um, like I said, I was that good boy that your mother always pointed to if you were acting bad. Now, it wasn't perfect. I had a little solitary sex number going, and I uh, cheated on tests to make good grades, and I lied to look get, you know, to look better. I always lied to look better. Um, we didn't have all this information that we do in the public schools now about condom information and sex education. 
So we were pretty frightened back in the 40s about all this. So the girls distracted me, but kind of all we did was kind of slobber around on each other a little bit. Uh, we really didn't get too serious about that stuff, but enough to do what I think I've found with every alcoholic. And uh, I maybe you all don't want to crawl under my tent, but I think that uh, this applies to a lot of us. I became able to have the opposite sex just literally break my heart. And I could just go into a real snit uh, off something like that. And so, uh, you know, everything wasn't great in high school, but if you looked at the outside, um, it looked okay. I identify with the people that mow the front yard and leave the backyard, uh, you know, about three or four feet deep. I identify with that bunch. <laughs> Uh, listen to this music here. Those of you that are in my age group, Don, uh, Tony, uh, Fibber McGee's closet really applied to me. Uh, you know, look in my house, but for God's sake, don't open my closet door because no telling what would jump out at you. Um, so I got through high school and I got awarded a, a scholarship to Yale. And uh, I went to Yale. And I didn't take a drink until the end of my freshman year, and by the end of my sophomore year, I was into enough trouble that I had a terrible thing happen to me. I, I, they gave me a D at uh, Yale, and that was pretty bad. It never occurred to me that, you know, when you're smart in Emerald High School, you go to Yale, you go to school with a bunch of other smart people. And uh, rather than, you know, working hard or trying to see what's wrong with me or doing something about that, maybe getting some coaching or tutoring, I did the thing that any self-respecting alcoholic would do. I just transferred to an easier state college. So I went down to Texas University, and I did a research grant on alcoholism down there. Uh, it was a grant supported by my father and a few of my summer jobs, and it got worse and worse, and the, the uh, uh, alcoholism began to multiply. And I don't want to ever forget what happened. Um, I got to going to class one day, and I walked past the bar room that I used to drink in on the way to uh, biology class, and the bar room smelled good to me, and I knew I was in trouble. So I called my dad up, and my father was sponsored by a dentist that started AA in Amarillo, and uh, George is a, like I said, I think alcoholics can come from any background, and they come from uh, all sorts of circumstances, and when they get sober, they'll do just about anything. And a lot of times when you get sober, what's the first thing you do is go try to straighten out the rest of the world. And, of course, old George is sponsored, gone down and tried to straighten out the dental college down there. He's trying to get them straightened out, and they were just terrified of old George. And I said, Dad, I need to talk to you and George. And uh, so he said, well, I'll go get George. You call me back. So... I called him back, and George was on the other extension of the office. He went down the hall in the office building there and got the dentist in his office, and my father was an attorney. And I said, uh, you got to get me uh, in dental college real quick. I'm in a hell of a mess, period. And I never want to forget this. You know, the way AA started working for me was to admit one thing. Drunk or sober, I think alcoholics have communication with an alcoholic. And I think the only way that you ever get help in AA is to admit one thing, that you're in a hell of a mess, period. If you have anything else, it won't work. Well, like I said, old George had the dental college terrified. On Tuesday, I called him. On Thursday, I was accepted to dental college. And uh, I think that saved my life. It really did. Um, 
I think that uh, uh, if I hadn't gotten to dental college, I, I don't think that I would have been uh, able to survive the next three or four years. Um, fear has a lot to do in your early days with drinking. It had a lot to do with mine. Um, they had a motivation technique back in the 50s. It's too bad they don't use it more. They used to send your grades into the draft board every six weeks, you know. So it was a very good motivation, you know. They just sent your grades in. And it was a good way to keep in school. Everybody said, well, I think I'll go join the Navy and everything. Well, I, you know, I didn't want to do that. Uh, half my graduating high school was wandering around in a Korean rice paddy, so I wanted to stay in school. Um, I did kind of love dentistry. That was a, it was a, a great thing for me. I kind of embraced it. I think a lot of us uh, get kind of a, a counterfeit spiritual experience on the finding the right profession. I think alcoholics have kind of a snoop for that, uh, pardon the Texan. But we got kind of a snoop for finding the right thing, and, and it kind of gives us a little bit of, uh, of a lift, and we may kind of get away from the drinking a little bit. What happened to me, though, is what I really imitated most was my father, like I said, didn't start drinking until he was 35, and he became a full-blown alcoholic, but he was a periodic alcoholic. So he'd stay sober for about 10 or 11 months, and uh, then he'd get drunk for about a month. And then he'd get, you know, sober for about 10 or 11 months, get himself in shape again, and then he'd get drunk for about a month. And you can make pretty good grades in dental college if you stay sober for about 10 or 11 months at a time. And so I got through dental college in pretty good uh, shape by just imitating my father's drinking pattern. Now, I'd like to say one thing about second-generation alcoholics. You know, they say if you ever come to AA and stay a while, we'll mess your drinking up. Well, what I think if you're a second-generation alcoholic, I think what AA does is it'll even mess your drinking up before you even start it if you're a second-generation alcoholic. Because I never got to drink normally. I was periodic from the beginning. I swore off the first time I ever got drunk. Got up in the mirror the next morning, and I swore off. And uh, I think this is what happens to you when you're second generation. And uh, I've been kind of resentful and kind of just downright, I uh, sit there kind of seized when these people go through these long drunkologues about how they kind of drank happily for years and they kind of slipped over this invisible line and everything. Well, I never had any invisible line. If I did, it must have lasted about 30 or 40 seconds, something like that. <laughs> and so I never had it. Um, well, i tell you another thing I did while I was in dental college. I decided this sex thing was getting pretty big, and the money thing was getting big, too. It cost money to go to college. And uh, my father was not doing that well, and so I kind of looked around, and I decided the thing I needed to do was I needed to find a rich wife. And I found this rich doctor who had a daughter, and I decided, and this is kind of alcoholic thinking, I decided if I married, it'd just be as easy to fall in love with a rich doctor's daughter as it would be to fall in love with a poor man's daughter. So I married this rich doctor's daughter. Now, something I didn't figure out, and that's the trouble with alcohol and thinking, you don't figure it all the way out, you know. You don't get the whole story. <laughs> I found out one of the things that makes rich doctors rich is they don't give their alcoholic son-in-laws a lot of money, <laughs> you know. Uh, he was very narrow-minded about this. He, he expected me to support the situation and get a job part-time, a summer job. And Well, I think the per- I, really, I really had a resentment for this doctor for a long time. I think he ris- just misrepresented himself completely to me. <laughs> and uh, I, really, I really just was real upset about that. Uh, 
I did graduate with honors. I got into trouble the last month. The school was one of those periods where I started drinking, and I almost got kicked out of uh, dental college. Um, I really had some problems there. I insulted a few of the faculty, and I went from second in the class to about fifth in the class. So I was kind of lucky to get out of dental college without getting kicked out. And I went into the United States Navy, and I want to say one thing about it. There's been a lot of controversy about the service, but I think the service is absolutely the best place in the whole world to multiply your alcoholism. I think that it is absolutely the best place in the world um, to, to really become a full-blown alcoholic. And I went to the Philippine Islands, and uh, that was pretty bad. Uh, there were a lot of things there that really... Um, were kind of hard now. Of course, you know, um, I'd already adapted what we adapt when we're drinking alcoholics, but we don't want to be alcoholics. I started putting in long hours at the dental office and working real hard. You know, the reason you work real hard is to prove people you're not an alcoholic. So I was working long hours at the dental office, and uh, of course, there were some the lights there on the naval base out there in the, the Philippines, there was uh, gin was 95 cents a fifth and, and cigarettes were 90 cents a carton. And uh, there were some exotic women out in the town there. Uh, and uh, I had a lot of binges and I had a lot of difficulties getting to work, but I always made it work. And I had a little league team. Now, you roll all that into one good thing and you got a mess. And uh, um, I never want to forget what happened. I, I was in a Little League picnic one time, and, of course, I was in pretty good shape before I got to the Little League picnic, and then we kind of had a little bit more to the Little League picnic. And then I took a couple of my coaches out in town after the Little League picnic, and um, there was a, a little altercation in the bar, and uh, one of my coaches almost got into it. And, uh, of course, uh, I've always been a little bit of a coward, and uh, I did want to see if I couldn't do something about this because I was an officer in the United States Navy. So I jumped up, and, of course, I didn't have any ability to, to really jump into the middle of this thing, so I pulled my billfold out to prove to this man that was about to assault my coach on my little league team that I was an officer in the United States Navy. Uh, I have a sponsor to wonderful ex-Marine this last year, and he has some absolutely colorful language, which I couldn't use from the podium. But he had one that he told me, which I probably can get away from here, so I will. And he said his drill instructor looked at him one day, and he said, listen, you with the alligator mouth and the Tweety Bird ass. <laughs> and that's what I had in the service. When they put an officer's uniform on me, I had an alligator mouth, and I was a coward. And uh, so I jumped into this middle of my fight, and I threw out my billfold to tell him, stop this immediately. I'm an officer in the United States Navy. And he did. He stopped it immediately. This fella hit me right between the nose and the mouth. And I skidded across the bar on the seat of my pants. And when I came to, the only ones in the bar were me and the shore patrol. So this is pretty bad. I was out in... uh, the local bars in short pants, and you can't be in short pants. And, of course, uh, I was so drunk I couldn't stand up. But in those times, you know, I don't know what I do nowadays. These kids, they didn't have breathalyzer tests. If they'd have given me, I'd have probably killed the machine. 
But they didn't give me a breathalyzer test, and they decided I had a concussion, and then they got witnesses. And, you know, that's always good to have an alcoholic get witnesses. Because a lot of your witnesses are alcoholics, too, and they can't ever get the time right. So <laughs> this happened between 8 o'clock at night and 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and had a bunch of Little League parents, and they all came down there, and they testified for me and so told them what a great guy I was. And they had patients come in. They told me how good I was fixing their teeth. Then they had a whole bunch of people come in from the bar that I'd gotten drunk and insulted, and they told them what a bum I was. And the United States Navy does what it does with a lot of us drunks. They just punt on third down and hope the hell will get out real quick. And uh, so that was kind of my tour in the United States Navy. I came back into a little naval air base in South Texas, and um, I, uh, um, you know, got sober in the church. Uh, and I don't want to belittle this. I think that, that uh, a little bit of it was a geographical cure. Uh, I remember when I came into AA, the old-timers, and you all have to pardon me a little bit because I talk about the old-timers and... and uh, I'm sure that Don and a lot of the other people bore you with that, but it's kind of something that I learned a lot of things. But they used to talk about, in the old days, I don't hear this anymore, they used to talk about uh, AA is not about quitting drinking. It's about staying quit. And that made some sense to me because I got sober in the church, but I couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't keep that. Um, I did get back to my hometown, went into practice, um, had a beautiful office, I, um, you know, had a uh, kind of a busyness thing that you get started as an alcoholic again, like I had in the Navy. And um, I moved into uh, uh, a house that my uh, mother lived in, and I lived about three or four blocks from my in-laws. And I really set myself up so I couldn't get drunk, you know, I thought. And um, I'll read what I got in the big book here because it kind of describes what it was in 1960. I was 28 years old. I'd been elected president of a civic club. I was a deacon and a Sunday school teacher. I had a lovely wife and three children. I'd just begun a dental practice in a beautiful new office. I'd completed a three-year tour in the United States Navy. They even gave me a plaque to hand on the wall. It didn't say that I almost got court-martialed in the Navy, but they gave me a plaque saying I'd been there. Um, my wife was in the junior league, and I was on the board of directors of the local center for the mentally retarded. Um, and really and truly, you, no one could have told me that I'd not earned all this. Um, my folks had kind of propped me up with this. And so nobody could tell me that I was an um, alcoholic. Nobody could have told me that I had a little problem with drugs. Uh, the only thing that bothered me is I had a queasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. And uh, it kind of hinted to me that everything was phony. In other words, the old God-shaped hole was getting worse and worse. And I'd accomplished all the right things that our society had expected, and I really didn't have any peace of mind or gratitude, and I was really nothing but a spoiled, indulged brat. And I like to tell two stories about what it was like. I really date myself with this story because this is the Pantyhose era. But when I was practicing dentistry, uh, I read a joke in a Diners Club magazine that really described my situation. There was a lot of uh, deceit and everything going on there. And it says uh, in the Diners Club magazine, it says, I know a man that wore a girdle. He's worn one ever since his wife found one in the glove compartment of his car. 
Well, that told about like I was. I, I did a lot of that. Um, I went into pedi- pediatric dentistry, and I heard another story about that time that kind of described I was the way I was. There was this great doctor, Dr. Jones, and Dr. Jones just was calm and patient with these little kids and everything. And finally, at a dental meeting, they kind of got him up against the wall, and they got a few drinks in him, and they said, Dr. Jones, what's your secret with children? Why are you so patient and tolerant with them? He says, well, every kid, three and a half grains of secanol. And this one doctor says, my God, regardless of the size or the age of the child, three and a half grains of secanol? He said, hell, I don't give it to the child, I take it myself. <laughs> so that was me. Uh, I was rattling around there, and um, in, in, in less, less than two years, uh, I lost my practice, my home, my wife, my children. I'd tried the church, and I'd tried psychiatry. Um, I tried this working hard, and finally, you know, I came to AA. Now, the last time I drank in 1962, I only drank for four days. Um, yet I got in a hangover, and I threatened to kill my children. I beat my wife up at home and on the church steps. I mistreated a child in the office and I ran to a hospital for mental illness to avoid jail. Now, it took me about three or four years in the program uh, to get up for truth and honesty to, to write this down for publication in the grapevine, and I really did have a hard time getting this out. Uh, now, I never leave this off my talk. I never leave it off of my fifth step when I swap fifth steps. Because I really don't want to ever forget what it was when you put hard work and the church and the psychiatry, but no AA and no work with the steps. I can go back there anytime I want to. Um, I have a spiritual talk. I told Don I couldn't give it tonight. Uh, back in 1967, I gave a spiritual talk down in Odessa. And uh, probably the most spiritual talk I've ever made. I, I was so impressed as I talked, I, I thought maybe I... Would, would get copies of this talk and, and uh, copy it and send it out to people just to help them. And uh, this guy came up to me after the talk, and he said, uh, Hi, my name's Ed. And I said, Hi, Ed. He said, I heard you talk last year in Midland. Midland's about 16 miles from Odessa. He says, I haven't had a drink since I heard you talk. And, oh, man, I just started, I nearly broke my hand patting my back, you know. I thought, you know, these spiritual talks, this is it. He says, you're the crazy dentist that beats your wife up on the church steps, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, hell, man, said, if you can get sober, anybody can get sober. <laughs> I used to have a lot of trouble with this uh, hospital for mental illness thing. I used to talk about rehabilitation hospitals. And we had an old coot. You know, the old coots, they're bald-headed, and they've been sober forever. This guy would come in with my father, and he'd never had any trouble. He'd been sober from the day he stepped in the door, 1946. And old George had come up, and George was ugly, you know, just tough. And he looked at me the first meeting, he said, Oh, my God, boy, he said, You're finished. He said, You're young, and you're an alcoholic. He said, You ain't got a chance. Well, anyway, I stayed around, and George came up one night after I got through talking, and he says, where in the hell do you get this stuff about mental illness hospital or rehabilitation hospital? He said, you went to a nut house. 
He said, you know why you went to a nut house? I said, no, why, George? He said, because you had enough money to stay out of jail. And that's exactly the reason I went to a nut house. Um, Don and probably some of the old, old timers, the other thing George used to talk about, uh, they used to have a Keeley cure, a Dr. Keeley, and he used to, he used to uh, um, uh, vaporize gold and he'd inject gold into their the veins. Remember that, Don? And they'd, they'd give them the Keeley cure, the gold cure. Well, we had an old boy up in, in Kansas named Murray Pratt, and old Murray used to talk about it. He said he didn't have the gold cure, he had the silver and iron cure. So he ran out of silver money, and they put him behind iron bars. <laughs> and, you know, that's what happened to me. Man, I, I just flat ran out of silver money, and uh, they put me behind nuthouse iron bars. And uh, so I came into AA really and truly. And I like this reason better every day because there weren't any other places to go. Now, if you run out of money with a psychiatrist, you're finished there. And they can talk about the shining of God's grace and the love in the center, but you cut up in the church enough and they don't want you down there either. So the only place you got to go to is AA. And I'm so glad I came here. Uh, late Jack Bowling up here in, in uh, Detroit used to talk about alcoholism is not a sin, it's a disease, but it's a sinniness disease. And I think that's the way it really is with, with alcoholics. Is uh, We do a lot of stuff before we get to AA. And we come in here and, and we get... Uh, you know, get sober, and, you know, we've been struggling to get sober all these years, and, and we get sober, and uh, then as soon as we can, we want to try to push this stuff down and not talk about this stuff. I didn't want to talk about beating my wife up on the church steps and all these other things I did, roughing the kid up in the office. But they wouldn't let me do that, now. They kept bringing this stuff up again and again and again. And I think that that's what's so great about AA, because if you don't do this, you're always blindsided by stuff coming up and hitting you in the butt that you forgot all about. And I think that that's what happened to me. In AA, I just had to be torn down and put back together differently. Uh, I don't think anybody like me could live such an irresponsible, immature life without consequences. So, um, you know, a lot of us come into AA young and... and uh, you get to listen to some of the old-timers. And, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has got to be, when you hear speakers, it's got to be a place where people have gone places and done things. And you come in here young, and uh, you're not a has-been. Uh, I wasn't a has-been. I just was a never-was. I just... <laughs> so they had to not only, you know, um, take a bunch of this crud out of me, but they had to kind of... Um, make me face all the consequences of my past action and then put me back together again. Um, now, after I came to AA, you know, you hear people have these success stories. After I came to AA, I had never lost a wife. I had never lost a practice. I'd never had a car repossessed. I had never been legally restrained from seeing my children. Um, I'd never been broke. Um, and the dental society never threatened me with my to lose my license. But after I got here, all those things happened to me. And uh, AA literally kept me from running away. Um, and there are a lot of good things. You know, a lot of us come into AA. I did. I came in here. And I thought, well, I just did that when I was drinking. I don't know whether any of you had problems like that. But 
uh, I came in here and I just did that when I drank. And when that dental assistant's husband came after me with shotgun, uh, and that was one sober, I had to take another look at that one. So um, there were a lot of areas there uh, that I had to start growing up all over again. That's the title of my you know, story in the big book. I just had to start growing up all over again. Um, I think growing up in the area of sex, growing up in the area of finances, these are two of the biggest areas for me. I mean, it's pretty terrible when you're 30, 40, 50 years old and you got the sex habits of a 13 or 14-year-old. And this financial thing, you know, I think it's terrible. You know, I didn't mind giving my family some money if there was some left over, but I had a whole bunch of stuff uh, I wanted to do with my money. Um, so another thing, I think that truth and sincerity did not come easy to me. I think admitting that I'm wrong or that I do not know was pretty hard for me. Uh, the late Joe Leaf down in Texas, old uh, freight, freight train uh, Joe Leaf that lost the freight train, used to say he never met anyone coming into AA, educated or lack thereof, that didn't have a head just jam-packed with unnecessary information. And I think that's the way I just came in here jam-packed with a whole bunch of unnecessary information. It was just absolutely unnecessary. And uh, uh, I guess trying to deal in the truth was the hardest thing in the world for me. It just was something that was terribly hard. It was, it was just unbelievable. And I never will forget, I ran into a tape of Tom Powers one time, and he said, you know, if you're having trouble with this God thing, you're having trouble with the religion. You're having trouble with the higher power. We're getting a hold of that truth thing. And I think some of us are lucky. Um, you know, they say, listen around and select you a sponsor and listen to people. And I didn't get that deal. I got selected. I got selected by Howard Mountain that ran a ditch digging machine. He was a ditch digger. And a stationary salesman, Ralph Garden. And they just kind of both outweighed me about 50 to 75 pounds. They just kind of grabbed a hold of me and wouldn't let go of me. And um, they said, uh, listen, you quit trying to be tactful. Uh, you can't be tactful without telling a lie. You just try telling the truth. And uh, every once in a while I'd start telling them, well, I, I, I did kind of shade the truth a little bit. They'd say, that's lying. And I'd say, well, uh, I, uh, I did write some kind of kite a few checks. They said, that's stealing. And I said, well, I'm messing around a little bit. Uh, they said, that's adultery. I thought, boy, these guys don't understand what it is to be an educated doctor. Uh, they're not looking at this at all right. So um, I think some of us are sicker than others. I used to talk a lot in AA in the old days, uh, and people would come up to me, and they'd shake my hand. They'd say, Doc, it's really good to see you sicker than others make the program. And I think, what the hell is this? These people just don't know what a good A.L.A. looks like and talks like, you know? And uh, I just really was highly insulted by this. And I think I had a terrible time with the steps because, like I said, I, I was a coward. Um, I'm so glad for the eighth step because the eighth step said, um, it says, um, a fifth step supposed to say things that you're going to take to your grave. He says, well, I got some debts on my eighth step I'm going to take to my grave. And that's the way I felt about all my financial amends. Um, and so I'm glad that I, I was able to do this in this 
this group I came into with these two men is they just had me made, make a list. And they kind of jollied me into making this list, you know. And I finally heard a, a speaker from USU, Texas. I never heard this guy ever say anything sensible before or after this statement. But he got up one night at a meeting and he said, I made a list of all people that harmed me and became willing to make amends to them all. And I thought, that's my program right there, you know. Um, step work. Uh, early on, I tried to practice the uh, third step as my uh, sponsor suggested, you know, get on your knees and say please. Morning, get on your knees at night and say thank you. But old Howard used to have a big old finger, just puts it in my chest, and he talked to me like that. There was word he put it in my chest. It still hurts in cold weather. And he'd say, a sicko like you don't have any problems. I said, what do you mean, Howard? He says, you just do what you don't want to do, and you don't do what you want to do, and you're all right. I don't want to belittle the third step. I repeat the third third step, uh, step prayer with the people I work with every day in the program. I repeat them with Scott and Diane, my wife and my son there, and, and I don't want to belittle that, but it really does help if you're a self-will run right person to uh, put that on that basis. Um, I began to exchange a lot of fifth steps uh, with a lot of men. Now, in our group back in Illinois, uh, we don't suggest that men swap fifth steps with women and vice versa because you kind of generate more material for your fourth step <laughs> doing that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, I met Jack Bolin and Paul Martin in the 60s, and uh, Paul Martin had started calling this swapping fifth step. And uh, I really think this is my lifesaver step. I, I just uh, have exchanged a lot of fifth steps uh, before I met them and a tremendous number um, since I met them. Now, they did one thing with me, though, when I was swapping fifth steps with them. And, uh, you know, when you're kind of a, a goofball in this thing, and I think, like I said, there's a lot of uh, stuff running around nowadays where they're trying to get your family to be... Uh, the reason for your troubles or what it is, um, or there's some circumstance that makes you do this. They said, now, when you write your inventory, you do this. If you look at it like this, you're okay. They said, if you're mad, you're wrong. If you're angry, you're wrong. If I'm resentful, I'm wrong. If I'm fearful, I'm wrong. If I'm dishonest, I'm wrong. And all of a sudden, my fifth step started taking on an entirely different picture when I started doing that. Um, I can't say how hard restitution was. I just it took a lot longer than I thought it would, and it took a long, longer, a lot, long time to just get the thing going. Um, every time I'd forget the nut house, there'd come another bill from the nut house, and Howard and Ralph had said, "Okay, can't pay them. Just let them know where you are." Well, that was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> A real mistake. And, um, you know, little kinky little old payments on big financial amends. I remember paying $50 for a $16,000 note I had at the bank. And this is back in the 60s when 16000 was kind of a little bit of money. And uh, I thought, this, this banker's going to really appreciate this. And, oh, he, he wasn't at all. He was ugly. He said, you're, you're going to get enough money at least to pay us interest. This is just a partial payment on the interest. And I think that that's kind of what alcoholics need. You know, um, 
getting your ego reduced, and that's what happens with restitution scrap. It's the continual thing of getting your ego reduced. And I think that the closer the alcoholic has to having his ego reduced, the, the closer he is to God, the closer he is to admitting there's something wrong with him. And I remember Clarence Snyder telling me that somewhere along the line, if you've got a group that's a good group, it's not a group that pats you on the head and builds up your self-esteem. It's when this old ego starts to grow again, it trims it back. Because ego is what's standing between you and God. Ego is what gets you drunk. If a person's absolutely licked, um, you, you, can't, you can't get drunk. That's how we came in here. Um, so anyway, I think slow restitution does something for you. Uh, Clarence Snyder came down to a retreat in 1967. He told me something. He said, if you don't stand on principles, you'll stand for, you'll fall for anything. It took me a long time to find out what were the principles. Now, the how-to principles, as I've kind of understand them, are rigorous honesty, uh, admitting that you're licked, prayer and guidance from God, moral inventory, confession, restitution, and working with others. Now, the where-to principles we'll get to later, but just starting to work with the how-to principles begins to be something. I think these are real important for alcoholics um, because there's just a sea of misinformation out there. And uh, I think what alcoholics can do is we can pick that misinformation up. It's kind of like that jam-packed, uh, you know, with unnecessary information. Head, we can pick that unnecessary uh, information up and we can just start telling everybody and everything all about it. And the big problems with that is alcoholics are great soap salesmen. They a lot of times um, get to selling everybody this stuff. And the only thing is nobody ever believes what you're saying. But you get to believe it, you know. And it's the worst thing in the world to be sober and going around and you're starting to believe some of this nonsense you picked up and you're not dealing in principles. And, uh, man, it's, it's, it's a shame because you're the one that's believing it. I'm believing this stuff. So it was important for me to work with these principles. Uh, good doctor friend down there in Gene Siegel helped me a lot with the 11th step. He said, you know what you need to do? He says, you were in the Navy, weren't you? And I said, yeah, Gene. He said, well, just get up every morning and report for duty. That made some sense. Um, so I began to report for duty. Uh, Paul Martin says, you know, if somebody paid you $1,000 to report for 11th step at 5 a.m. every day, you'd be there. And... Uh, I guess that's true. And in our alcoholism, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, isn't it worth more than $1,000 a day? So that's kind of what kind of kept me going. I want to talk a little something kind of serious. I won't get too serious tonight because it's Saturday night and Friday night, and uh, I'd have a little trouble being too serious, but I'll try to say something a little serious here. When I ran into Tom Powers in 1968, he really put me on a set, uh, real solid course with the 11th step, and I want to talk about this because it works with anybody. He said, put your 11th step time together this way. He said, take a repetitive prayer, like, Lord God Almighty, have mercy on me. He said, if you're a Christian, say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And try to repeat that so that you meditate on that 10 minutes in your 11th step time, six days a week. He said, the other part of your... 12-step time, he said, 11-step uh, time there, he said, uh, read the big book or read the Bible. He said, uh, if you do that, you're going to find truth 
in one or all three of those sources. And I think that the repetitive prayer has meant more to me than anything because I can do that about any time, anywhere, any place. And if I got that, once I got that 10-minute wedge in early in the morning, um, something began to happen. And I really am grateful for that. The other thing I like to say about the 11th step is I think that it's great in these days that we've got so many tapes. Uh, you know, you got a lot of good AA talks that you can listen to. you got the big book on tape. And um, you got the 12 and 12 on tape. One guy says, my God, man, that's brainwashing. Well, if you got a brain or a mind like mine, it don't hurt to wash it a little bit. Uh, you know, a lot of times if you would see what's in my mind, you would arrest me. Uh, so it doesn't hurt to have a little of that brainwashing. Um, another thing that Howard and Ralph used to tell me, they said, you know, it says in the big book that, 50, uh, that half measures avail us nothing. In other words, 50% equals zero. He said, now, did it ever occur to you that 50% equals zero, then 75% equals zero? And 90% equals zero, and 99 and 44% 100% equals zero. The only thing that'll cut this program is 100% commitment. Now, not the way you practice the program, and not the results, because your idea of a result and God's idea of a result in this program may be a little bit different. But your commitment to the program has got to be 100%. And if I have trouble in the program, I always know I can go back to that. I didn't put that 100% in there. Uh, I have a, my ex-Marine has a lovely little statement. He says, half-ass measures avail you nothing. You know, that's, that's all right, too, you know. Um, the 12th step is so important. Um, I think Sister Ignatia is a, an epitome of the 12th step. Um, my 12th step is quite a 12th step. Um, as I said, my dad's sponsor got me in the dental college. He got dad sober. My father was struggling pretty much as attorney when he got into the program, and he had a lady come in after I'd gone away to college, and she said, I want to disinherit my no-good niece. She's an alcoholic. And of course, I know my father could have used that. It's a very complicated will. She said, uh, you know, it needed to be rewritten. It's quite lengthy. It take a lot of time, and he needed the money, and I remember... Uh, what he did. He said, well, he said, before you do that, so let me call some gals down at the AA club and let's take Denise up to the hospital in Oklahoma and see if we can sober her up and take her back to the group. Well, 13 years later, this lady with an English professor came and took me to my first meeting. And when I got in AA, I sponsored a painter and I sponsored a lawyer. And about, I guess, 1986, this number one daughter of mine down in Texas got suicidal, and she tried the psychiatrist in the church, and she just really was desperate. She called me, and I said, well, go to Al-Anon. Let me give you a name of a couple of ladies whose husbands I sponsor. So my number one daughter in, in Texas came to Al-Anon that way. So I don't think that you can outgive AA. I think that, that there's no way... I'd give AA, and every time I think about this, I just kind of um, lump out with the thing. Um, people say there's not much 12-step work available nowadays. If you do what the big book says in working with others, and you get on your knees every day and ask God to put you in contact with the alcoholics you're supposed to be in contact with, I tell you what, for 30-odd years now, I've just been overrun by alcoholics. Um, 
there's just no way not to have alcoholics in your life. Um, that's about all I got to say about the early years in AA. Uh, I like this definition of alcoholic, uh, that alcoholism that Jack Boland says about the sinning is disease. Uh, I think Bill Wilson uh, got self-will run right from the old Schofield Bible. Schofield has in there, it says, under trespass, it's an intrusion of self-will into the sphere of divine authority. And I think that's pretty deep. Uh, you see, I, uh, putting our will into God's authority, I think that's a pretty good definition of alcoholism. Now, for you of those that can't handle that stuff that's heavy, i got another definition for you on the lighter side. Uh, two gals are talking, and one gal says to the other gal, How was your honeymoon? And she says, Oh, I found out my husband was an alcoholic. And she said, Oh, honey, that's terrible. So did he get drunk? No, he didn't touch the drop. said, well, how do you know he's an alcoholic? said, well, said, I got in bed, and he got on the side of the bed, and he told me how great it was going to be, and he didn't get around to doing anything for three days. <laughs> We're great talkers. You know, we, we really are. We can uh, talk better than anybody. My Alan and wife says over there, don't look at me with your pretty little green eyes and tell me you're going to do something if you're not going to do it. You know, she says, don't tell me with your pretty little old soulful green eyes that you're sorry. Just quit doing that shit, you know? <laughs> the new people want to say this. Um, I think alcohol, that the steps are for alcoholic as X-lax is for constipated people. You know, you can get a box of X-lax if you're constipated. And if you take the X-lax out of the box, you put it in your hand and you put X lax in your mouth, you chew it up, you'll get a result. You don't have to understand the theology of X lax. <laughs> you don't have to understand the psychodynamics of X lax. You don't have to understand the physical com you know, composition of X lax. All you got to do is take it and you'll get a result. I think this is the way the steps are, you know. Uh, you can talk about them, you can study about them, and I don't want to belittle big book studies, and I don't want to belittle 12-step studies and everything, but really and truly, uh, I think the thing to do is to take the steps. If you're having trouble with the steps, get somebody to help you. None of the steps are written in the I pronoun, they're written in the we pronoun. And I needed lots of help on this thing. So, um, I think that's, that's really... What this thing is all about is that the steps give you a 100% result. It starts to fill up this God-shaped hole. Um, Hal Hill over in Baltimore says one thing that I think is great. He says, um, you know, the big book tells you how to stay dumb and stupid. You just turn back the spiritual awakening under that. It says, you know, Spencer says, contempt prior to investigation. I don't know how many people tell me that the steps don't work, and I talk to them, I find that they've never tried them. It's kind of like X-Flax. I've talked to a lot of people that have never taken X-Flax. They don't know what happens if they don't take X-Flax, you know. Well, it's the same thing with the steps. First step. Um, that's about all i got to say to you new people. Uh, you can go to sleep if you want to. I'm going to talk to the old geezers now. Um, I think everybody has a uh, storybook, you know, storybook experience sooner or later. Um, I think that Everybody has what happened to me is that sooner or later your storybook experience comes to an end. Uh, in 1972, my second wife 
decided she didn't want to be married anymore. Uh, we both had gone to college. We cut back a little bit on our A involvement, but we were still pretty active in the program. Uh, we didn't have any family problems such as drugs or drinking or uh, finances. We paid all the bills off. No adultery, no sex. She just felt that our marriage was stifling her. And of course, you know, um, you can translate your situation, whatever it is, health, finances, personal relationship, marriage, or whatever it is into something like this, but I want to tell you about mine and what happened to me because I think it's the way I had it happen to me. But I think after you've been sober for a long time, when something happens and God throws you a curb, you get to thinking, well, why me? And I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't remember ever hearing a, a, a speaker get up and talk about this, saying that uh, you get some rest and ease after so many years in the program that you get your rocking chair out and you rock in the rocking chair. I don't think I ever heard anybody say that, but I think that there is uh, a concept that after so many years you can kind of rest on this program. Uh, one thing good about doing a lot of intense work and being a real sick cookie like me is you kind of uh, know when the going gets rough what you got to do. Uh, you know what you have to do. Down in Texas, there are a lot of uh, dry creek bed fords across dry creeks down there. That's where you can drive your car. Um, and if there's a little bit of water in the creek, you can drive your car over it. And if it gets a little more water in the creek, you can still drive over it. It gets too high, you can't drive over that area because you've drowned your car out. And they have signs down there in Texas, and they say, when this sign is underwater, this ford is impassable. <laughs> and you've got to be driving back and forth across that when it's dry weather to know that that sign's there. And I think that's the way it is with the steps. You've got to be doing these steps so that when the tough times come, you're in practice with them. Um, well, let me get to swap this test again. That's my been my lifesaver. Uh, I didn't want the sex out of marriage back. Didn't want the financial irresponsibility. Didn't want the violence. Uh, certainly don't want the violence nowadays because, you know, it's getting tougher and tougher out there. Um, you can't drive a car drunk. You can't, you know, do this and that. Violence is, I mean, they, they really throw the book at you anymore, so I didn't want that back. Didn't want fears back. And I remembered something Clarence had told me. And he said, you know, I don't know what all the talk is about first things first. He said, in the old days, the first things first only meant one thing. It came out of the book there and it said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things should be added. And I think this is the thing that, that all of us need to do with this. Is I think that we try to get first things first in a lot of areas, but I think that that's what we're seeking more than anything. That's what the AA program is all about. That's what Sister Ignatius' life was all about. I think that when you have character defects like I do, everybody says, well, that's not an action step. Well, I like to tell this story about it because I think the sixth and seventh step is an action step. You know, down in Texas, I was telling Don and Jim here before the meeting, I don't know what to do up here. I was born in the Bible Belt and uh, born down there at the Baptist and Campbellites and the Methodists and <laughs> up here with all these Irish Catholics and all these Italian Catholics, I really have a hard time. We have a semantic difficulty. <clears throat> so I have a lot of stories about Baptists down in the South, and I have a hard time. But anyway, down there in my hometown, there's a Baptist minister, and he got the co-mingling in the funds and kind of getting a hold of the money that he wasn't supposed to get a hold of. And the Baptists are kind of tough. You know, they got together, and they found out he was stealing the money, and they 
called the district attorney. The district attorney came over and prosecuted him and judged through the book at him and sent him down to a work farm, Huntsville, Texas, penitentiary. So the first morning that old preacher got there, that old Baptist preacher got there, he came out there about 6.15 and the old guard was out there and to work for him. They picked cotton. He said, preacher? He said, here's a hundred pounds cotton sack. Say, you go out and pick us a hundred pounds cotton. And the old Baptist preacher got his blue, thin lips up there and his thin glass voice and he said, if the good Lord wills it, I'll pick it. And he goes out there and he picks that cotton. You know, it cuts your hands if you pick that cotton the first time. And he struggles and struggles and comes back in. Early that night, he gives them his cotton sack and they weigh the cotton sack and said, Preacher, we told you to pick us a hundred pounds of cotton and you only got eighty-five. So they pulled his overalls down they took out a big old razor strap and they just beat the dickens out of him. So the next morning about six o'clock, he's kind of crippling out there and they said, Preacher, there's a hundred pound cotton sack. You go out and pick us a hundred pounds of cotton. And he gets his stained glass voices out and his, his thin blue lips and he said, if the good Lord wills it, I'll pick it. So he goes out there and he drags in about sundown, gives them their cotton sack. Man, that thing's heavy. It's hot. Hands are all cut up. They weigh it and they said, preacher, we told us to pick us 100 pounds of cotton. You only picked us 95 pounds of cotton. So he pulled his overalls down again so they'll have to raise the strap and beat him. Just viciously, you know. So the next morning, about quarter to six, the sun's just kind of coming up. Here comes the preacher out. The guard says, Preacher here. The preacher doesn't even let him finish. He grabs the cotton sack and says, That damn cotton's out there, I'll pick it! I think that's the way the sixth and seventh step is. You've got to put yourself in a position to let God remove these defects of character. And I think that what i got to say is between 1972 and 1975, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, never did any drinking and drugging. Uh, I had made amends to this patient. I roughed up in the office. Um, I had to change my specialty from that pediatric dentistry to general dentistry. Um, I had a lot of interesting things. They had patients coming in and saying, I don't want anything but Novocaine. Don't give me other, any other drugs. I had to find a different way to practice dentistry. Uh, I was Mr. Drugstore. I had all sorts of drugs to get patients, and, and people would come from an ace that didn't want that. So I did do one thing that I think is tremendously important. I had a $4,000 a men, a country club membership, and I still had this resentment to this father-in-law, and I finally decided we thought about this country club membership and court and everything, and I'd supposedly won, but he'd given it to me back in 1960, and I called him up and I said, I owe you this $4,000, I think, and I'd like to give it to you. So I did that, and almost immediately, um, my whole life and my whole practice changed. I wound up moving to New York. Um, I did get married to a bank president temporarily. Um, she went up to New York with me and took a back at that town of 600 and decided that she didn't want any part of that. Um, so I was divorced again. Um, I want to say a little something. I went into this community where Tom Powers was and they were having trying to work the steps. Um, I really had kind of made amends to my Texas children. I was on speaking terms with my first wife and my second wife. But I had been 
doing a lot of fist steps and been working with a lot of people that were really into doing real good fist steps. And I began to see what a lot of times you can't see. You know, if you're doing okay by modern standards, that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing okay. And I had to really look at this stuff and go back and see uh, where I was really wrong in this family situation. There's a sign in a, in a club down in Longview, Texas that said, if you're almost right, you're wrong. And boy, for an alcoholic, that hits home real good. And I could see that, that uh, a lot of the reason for my failure in the family department, um, in the first marriage because I was drinking, but in the second marriage also because I really and truly um, had not looked at what the big book says. You know, if you look back far enough, the big book says this, if you look far enough back, if you think you're in a circumstance where people are stepping on your toes, you'll find that you made a decision based on self to set this thing on in motion. In other words, the old self will run right. So I kind of went up to East Ridge in uh, New York with the idea that I kind of felt like Dr. Bob did about his drinking. He says this in his big book story. And I felt like that I had mistreated women and neglected children so much Prior to 1965, that uh, uh, the privilege of family had been withdrawn, and I really couldn't squawk much about it. Um, I kind of felt like the horse thief uh, they caught down in Texas. I don't know what they do with them in uh, Ohio, but down in Texas, if they catch a horse thief, you know, they tie his hands behind the back, they put him on a horse, and they put a rope around his neck, and they throw it up to the highest limb, and then tie the rope to the tree, and then they hit the horse, and it runs out from under the guy. And they were asking this horse thief, they said, do you have any last words before we hit this horse? He said, oh, yes, sir. He said, this is going to teach me a powerful lesson. And that's kind of the way I was. I had kind of run to the point where I'd gotten a powerful lesson, but I didn't know where I was going with that. Uh, the community was working on the 12 steps. The community was working on something else that I had heard about, but I never worked about, and that was the absolutes. And I'll give them here as I was giving them. Absolute honesty, and I think these are the where-to principles. There's the how-to principles, and there's the where-to principles. Absolute honesty, not lying to oneself and others, fidelity to the truth and thought, word, and action. Absolute purity, purity of mind, purity of body, purity of emotion, purity of heart, sexual purity. Absolute unselfishness, seeking what is right and true in every situation above what I want. Absolute love, loving God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor is yourself. And you know what's so great about AA is you can go that in the same way that it says in chapter 5. You can go in a way of progress. In other words, you don't have to be perfect on that stuff today. You can just go in that direction. And I tell you, these things literally pick me up and turn me around. Um, opened a small office, quite a change from Amarillo. I had a, about six millionaires in my practice there at Amarillo. I had a country club membership. I had a pretty home. I left all that. Um, you know, it's not fashionable to have Texas millionaire jokes anymore. I'll tell one anyhow. Um, Texas millionaire goes up to New York City and rents a penthouse, you know, big hotel. Goes up there. Goes to the top floor, rents a suite, top floor. Comes up there. Bellhop comes up and he says, I want a woman six foot tall, weighs 98 pounds, redheaded. Bellhop says, sir, this is a respectable hotel. He pulls out a big old wad of bills there, and he says, money's no object. Throws a couple in the old boy's pocket here. 
He said, I believe we can arrange something. About 30 minutes later, he brings this tall, tall skinny gal in. He says, well, golly, I believe you are six foot tall, weigh 98 pounds, redheaded. He said, all right, lady, he said, just take all your clothes off right here in this room. She says, sir, I, I, she, he says, will this be enough? And he throws a bunch of money at her. He says, okay. So she takes all her clothes off. She's standing there in the room, six foot tall, redheaded, jaybird naked, <clears throat> weighs 98 pounds. He goes over to one of the bedroom doors and opens it up and says, Mary Alice, come out here. I want you to see what you're going to look like if you don't drink your milk. Little girl comes out there. Takes the millionaires out of style now. That shows you how old I am with that joke and the, and, the, and the girl joke. I mean, I really dated at this stage of the game. Well, the community that I moved into in New York assigned me a dental assistant. Uh, she was also from Texas. She'd been an ex-dental assistant, but she was impossible. She was a side of gal. Uh, we went at it from the beginning. Um, I wanted to fire her. She wanted to quit. And the community had this real obnoxious habit of when you had a problem, you had to sit down and talk it out. And uh, uh, I will say that that was a real experience. There's lots of screaming and hollering and carrying on with this, but we worked it out in the office. Um, I went on with my 11th step time. Like I said, the, the, the Jesus prayer there really began to be something big. The 10-minute wedge got into about 20 or 30 minutes, and then a lot of times during the day, the prayer started to run on its own. And that, to me, was my conscious contact with God when I really didn't have anything to do with it if, if something happened. Um, well, anyway, we were having a good time in the community. We, we really had a nice little thing there. Uh, about a year after I'd moved to New York, uh, my second wife sent my six-year-old daughter to live with me. Uh, I was up there just going to make a few dentures and fill a few teeth and be spiritual, pray a lot. All of a sudden, I got a six-year-old daughter on my hand. Um, about a year later, I had to hire four people in the office, uh, three others besides this lady that went to work for me. Um, and about this time, I had something really unusual happen to me. I had about four non-alcoholic Christian doctors uh, come into my life. And um, these all were non-alcoholics. One of them was a Quaker homeopath, and one of them was a Catholic, a Catholic craniolosity fast. One of them was a Baptist nutritionist, and one of them was a Methodist TMJ dentist. And they all just kind of took me under the, their wing and taught me everything I know now. And, and really and truly, um, I think I understand a little bit about what Dr. Bob must have felt with Sister Ignatia, because these people were good from the beginning. You know, a lot of us in this room, we spent 30, 40 years going in the wrong direction. And then we kind of started going the right direction. These people had been straight all their lives, and I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't uh, uh, say enough about these people. Um, it says in the big book, be quick to see where religious people are right. And uh, I think there's some people that are on a mission. Uh, Sixers Nation was, all these guys that I worked with were. My only qualification for working with these people is I'd had an intense uh, amount of experience with the steps. And kind of interesting, a few months later on my 45th birthday, uh, the community minister married me in the community church to the only other single parent in the community, uh, and she happened to be that dental assistant that I couldn't stand. Uh, so uh, things did work out. Uh, I want to say this. Bill Wilson says right before he talks about the third step prayer, he writes, we were reborn, and this is the way it was for me. 
Um, I was reborn in the disease of alcoholism into a sober alcoholic. Um, I couldn't be born into the family of God until I was reborn into it. And only through the 12 steps of AA uh, was I given rebirth into a family of my own. I used to hear the old-timers get up and they get tears in their eyes when they talked about the brotherhood of the second chance. And I was beginning to really understand what they were talking about now. Um, 1978, Diane and I moved our daughters, uh, Christy and Cinnamon, to Illinois to be close for O'Hare for our dental practice. Um, <laughs> we, uh, um, you know, had a tremendous practice there, asking God just to send us the people. Most people were supposed to be in contact with every day. We've remodeled an old farmhouse. We've grown organic chickens and goats and horses and gardens and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, we've worked with alcoholics and al anons all the time. Uh, in 1981, I'd been drunk on a couple of the kids that I had by the first wife. And uh, Scott was born to Diane and myself at home uh, without any drugs, doing all this stuff that I've learned with some help from the doctors. And, you know, I think that's what it is. In, in, in some of the healing disciplines, there's a law that you got to go back through all of the disease symptoms to get well in true healing. I think this applies to AA. Hey, you got to grow up all over again. I want to talk about one thing that happened to Diane and me. Um, I'd gotten a lady pregnant before marriage um, when I was a youth, and I'd really acted irresponsible about this. And Diane's sister got pregnant at 15 before she was married, and Diane just ignored her and, and ran away from home. And so what happened to us is our two daughters got pregnant uh, before married. Not at the same time, but over a period of time there. And this was a real experience for Diane and myself. You know, it's okay if our children get pregnant, but if your children, your daughter gets pregnant, that's not my daughter. And this was a real experience. Uh, we had lots of hollering and screaming and crying and kicking about this. And just about wore poor old Paul Martin out. Uh, Paul spent a Saturday with us in 1991, I guess, uh, after Thanksgiving, and, and uh, we just—he was exhausted by the time he got through with. And uh, I don't think that anybody agreed with anything he said. We didn't agree with each other, but from that point on, our marriage got better. Um, what's very interesting about it is both the girls had their babies at home on our farm. Uh, one daughter liked it so much that when she and her husband decided to have another baby, they had another baby at home, and she worked for a home birth doctor. So uh, this thing has gone on and on about not living with drugs and trying to live a natural way. And so, you know, this thing has been, you know, it's just great. I think that what I'm trying to say is that when you're old geezers like we are, you have failures in AA. And I think it's tremendously important um, to believe that power can only come to an alcoholic in spiritual poverty. I think that's something I've got to remember. Old Howard used to say to me, you know, there ain't no power, boy, like the power from God to the undefended heart of the alcoholic. You know, when you're an old geezer, it's just great if you say that you really are messed up and you really are uh, a heck of a mess. I, I can't tell you how much. Paul Martin says you can't live on the air that you breathed 10 years ago, you can't live on the food that you ate 10 years ago, you can't live on the water you drank 10 years ago, and the AA program is that, like that. You've got to live on the AA program uh, right now. Um, 
I used to think I didn't want to come to AA because everybody down there was old and fat and bald-headed and they lost some teeth. And now I'm old and fat and bald-headed and I've lost a bunch of teeth. And every once in I get to thinking, well, you know, what's it worth? I mean, what's, it, what's the deal? I mean, uh, it's so late now, why do anything about it? But I think that's not right. You know, I've seen people grab onto the book book and grab on the 12 steps and... Um, the old timers used to say very simply, you know, give, give you a silver dollar with an eighth of the top of it out of it. And with the eighth of the top of the silver dollar out of it, that would let you know that the whole picture is not on the earth plane. And alcoholics have a tendency to clue in on the earth plane. And I think that that's what I'd like to, to leave here tonight is that I do not want to say that the whole picture is what we can see. There's something else that we can't see there. Um, I want to tell you how much it's been wonderful to have a kid like Scott. Uh, he's been a delight to me. Um, I can't tell you how much fun it's been uh, to have a wife like Diane that's put up with a tremendous amount of alcoholics coming in and eaten probably 10,000 meals since we moved to, to uh, Illinois. Um, I want to tell one Al-Anon joke before I quit. It's the best Al-Anon joke I've heard. Um, and it kind of describes the way Al-Anons really are when they work the program. You heard about the Al-Anon that went to the doctor and he gave her a thorough examination. And he's an examiner and he'd gotten through and he said, well, let's examine your breast. So he opened up her smock there and he's examined her breast. And he says, Mabel, he said, you know, you're just in great shape. He said, look at these breasts. He said, these breasts are the breasts of a 19-year-old. He said, I'll tell you what you do. He said, you go home, get in front of the mirror at home, take your clothes off, and give yourself some positive strokes. He says, you're in great shape. So she goes home. She does what the doctor says. Alanons usually do what the doctor says. The alcoholic that doesn't. And she gets in front of the mirror, she takes her clothes off, she's looking at herself there in the mirror, you know, thinking, all of a sudden, here comes old Marcio, Macho George, the AA, and he's coming up the stairs, two or three stairs at a time. He's got his three-piece suit on, his patent leather shoes, you know. Uh, he's got his shirt unbuttoned to about the third button. Uh, got his gold chains on, a little hair hanging out the shirt, and the gold chains, you know. And uh, he's so macho, he jogged home from his vasectomy. And uh, he comes charging in the room, and he said, Mabel, what the hell are you doing? Well, George had been to the doctor, said he examined me, said I'm in great shape, said um, doing awful good and everything, said come home and give yourself some positive strokes. He said, George, you know what he said? He said, I had the breast of a 19-year-old. He says, huh. What did he say about that 40-year-old ass of yours? She says, gosh, George, your name never came up in the conversation. My Al Anon is a great gal. Um, God's easy to please, hard to satisfy. Um, 
I like to close with one thing because I think we all in AA do this. We have a tendency to waver between faith and non-faith. And my favorite closure is, is this because it's something I, I kind of like to keep in mind. In the Gospel of Mark, um, the epileptic's father says to Jesus, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto them, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. I don't know this guy was an alcoholic, uh, NAA, 2,000 years before we had the program, because it says, Straightway the father of the child cried out, and with tears said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I want to thank you, uh, Harris. It uh, shows one thing. If we keep doing what we're doing, we'll be all right. You know, we're running a little late now, so we're going to have the candlelight sobriety countdown now. Uh, you want to bring the candles out here? And Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, let me just say one minute. Tony wants to say something, then I want to say something. Right after John gets through, we're going to give away 20 $10 bills. I want to thank the people from Canada. Let's give them a big hand for coming here. There are foreigners in our land, and the people from Ashland, Coshocton, Cincinnati, all over. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you again next year.